me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. When it comes to sharing the gospel, some settings are more difficult than others. And that's true because some people are more open to the gospel than others. We saw that last week in the early part of chapter 17, verse 11 tells us the people in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. They received the gospel with eagerness. They searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so, and many believed. In contrast, in Thessalonica, Paul had to reason with the people, persuade the people, and only some believed. Thessalonica was more difficult than Berea. This morning, we're going to find Paul come to a place that's even more difficult than Thessalonica. In fact, it's probably the most difficult place of all. He is in the city of Athens. And Athens was difficult because it was the center of Greek philosophy and Greek education. It had the world's most famous university. A few centuries earlier, Socrates had taught his students there, the most famous of which was Plato. And Plato taught his students there, the most famous of which was Aristotle probably the most influential philosopher of all time. And Athens had seen its heyday several centuries before Paul arrived there. In the 4th century B.C., it was the greatest city in all the world. And by the 1st century, Corinth had replaced Athens as the political and commercial center of Greece, but Athens still had that distinction of being the philosophical center of the ancient world. It was like the Harvard or Princeton of that day. And there's something intimidating about an academic environment. When a college freshman goes into that first class with the goal to make a difference for Jesus Christ, it's a nerve-wracking experience. And you know, many Christians tend to stay quiet in an intellectual setting for fear that we might come across as a country bumpkin or for fear that we might be put down. Many of us follow the old adage, keep your mouth shut and you'll be thought a, few, a fool. Open your mouth and you'll remove all doubt. And Paul seems to understand that this is a difficult environment because in verse 15, when he first arrives there, he gave orders that Silas and Timothy should come to him as soon as possible. And verse 16 begins, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens. Now all the rest of the time on this journey, Paul had ministered in a team. Now he's alone. And you get the impression that he wasn't planning to do any ministry until Silas and Timothy got there. He was waiting for reinforcements. But something changed all that. Verse 16 now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. Paul was walking around Athens doing the tourist thing. Probably had his Bermuda shorts on. Waiting for Silas and Timothy. And he sees that the city is full of idols. Contemporary historians say that there were more than 30,000 idols in the city of Athens at this time. 
The pagan writer Petronius made the sarcastic comment, it was easier to find a god in Athens than a man. And as Paul saw all of these idols, it says that his spirit was provoked within him. Now that's a strong term. That means to become angry, to become furious. It's the word used in Acts 15.39 to describe the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Now in previous cities, it was the people who became angry at the preaching of Paul and usually ran him out of town. In the city of Athens, it's Paul who became angry about what he saw. And what he saw was idolatry. Now, why was he so angry about idolatry? Well, I think probably two reasons. Number one, idolatry robs God of his glory. And number two, idolatry robs man of his dignity. We are created in the image of God, made to worship him. And idolatry is the very antithesis of that. Jerusalem moved the Lord Jesus to tears and anger. What Paul saw in the city of Athens did the same. And so what did he do? Verse 17. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. He was so provoked by what he saw in Athens that he couldn't wait for Silas and Timothy he went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he went into the marketplace and reasoned with whoever happened to be present. Now, the synagogue in Athens may not have been that difficult. These were people who believed in the God of the Old Testament. These were people who regarded the Scriptures as the authoritative Word of God. These were people who provided a platform for someone like Paul to come and speak but the marketplace was another story. That's downtown Athens. Amidst all the intellectual arrogance, all the philosophical ideas, all the religious idolatry. And Paul was not intimidated. In fact, it's interesting to note his style. He didn't leave tracks at key locations around the city of Athens hoping someone would find them. He doesn't plan, plan a gospel meeting in the synagogue and send out flyers. No. It says he went right into the public arena and reasoned with whoever would listen. Verse 18. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Epicureans were people who believed that all of life is random. There is no meaning. Nothing that happens in the life of an individual has any rhyme or reason or purpose. We're not here for any reason. This material world is all that exists, and when we die, that's the end. And so there are no absolutes, there's no right and wrong, there's no good and bad. And so the Epi Epicurean philosophy was, you might as well grab for the gusto. You might as well extract all the delicacies you can out of life. Take care of number one. Choose what's best for you. 
And that philosophy is still prevalent in the world today under a, another title called existentialism. The Stoics, in contrast, believed that life had meaning. They just didn't know what it was. Everything was determined by the gods who they viewed as being far away and fairly indifferent to what was going on here. And so the Stoics concluded that the best attitude toward life was resignation. Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. You can't change anything, so the best way to approach life is to try not to feel anything. Don't overreact emotionally. Don't get too high and don't get too low. And of course, that philosophy is still around today as well. You hear people say, I just take one day at a time. I play the hand life dealt me. I do the best I can. And when I die, maybe I'll find out what it was all about. The Epicureans believe that we are the victim of chance. The Stoics believed we are the victims of fate. The Epicurean motto was, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. The Stoic motto was, grin and bear it. The Epicureans said, enjoy life. The Stoics said, endure life. And these are the two kinds of philosophers that Paul encountered in the marketplace in Athens. And the sad thing is that though they both had different worldviews, they reached the same conclusion about man. He is insignificant. The Epicureans said, He's an accident. The Stoics said he's a pawn controlled by the whims of the gods, which I think explains to us all the idolatry because these people were desperately in search of significance. They were saying, if, if I can just build a gold statue or a temple, maybe... Some God out there somewhere will be pleased, and if I worship Him enough, maybe I'll matter to Him. And Paul comes into that setting with a message we read at the end of verse 18, preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Paul came saying, you matter so much to God that He gave His only Son, Jesus, to die in your place, and He rose again to give you eternal life. But the response he got is pretty predictable. It's the typical response from the intellectual, philosophical environment. The first response is one of arrogance. Verse 18 says, And some were saying, What would this idle babbler wish to say? Some listening to Paul who were arrogant in their own intelligence said he's just an idle babbler. Now that word babbler is a literal, literal, literally translated seed picker. He's a seed picker. Now, that was a typical word used to put somebody down. It was, it was the idea of a bird indiscriminately picking seed in a barnyard. And what it meant was, here's a person who just picks up scraps of information wherever he can and passes it on without really having any depth of understanding. He's a seed picker. And so in their arrogance, they listened to him and they mocked him. 
And then there was a second response, and that was the response of ignorance. Verse 18 says, Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. When Paul spoke about Jesus, they said, Well, he's probably talking about just another God like all of our other gods. They responded in ignorance. Here was Paul telling them the first real truth they had ever heard, and they couldn't comprehend it. For all their intelligence, they were ignorant. Now, this is not a real encouraging response. You can imagine, Paul goes into the marketplace, begins to talk to the people there, and the two responses he gets is some people are laughing at him and other people are scratching their heads. Not a real encouraging response. But as we read on, we find in verse 19, it says, And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Areopagus means literally the hill of Ares. He was the god of war. He was equivalent to the Roman god Mars, which is why this is often called Mars Hill. This is the place in Athens where they held court. But on this occasion, Paul was not on trial as a criminal. He was simply getting the opportunity to explain more fully his message. Why? Verse 21. Luke adds a parenthesis. Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. That's an apt description of the philosophy department of universities. They're not doing any work. They're not doing anything. They're just sitting around talking about what's new. New ideas, new things. When I was in college, which was a long time ago, the end thing was to say that you were seeking the truth. What are you doing? I'm seeking the truth. You know what? Then I found the truth. And I went back to these guys. I found it. No, no, you can't find it. You just have to be seeking the truth. I don't want to hear about it. I just want to seek it. So you look at all the new ideas and all the new thoughts and you gather all this information. You've got to be on top of everything that's new. And so Paul comes along preaching a new message and they say, we want to hear about that. So we can add that to our collection of new things to think about. And so Paul was not one to pass up an opportunity to speak. And so he takes this opportunity. And his message is recorded for us in verses 22 to 31. He begins with a great introduction, verse 22. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. They had 30,000 idols, but they were worried that they might have missed one. So they added another altar, which was the altar to the unknown God. Doesn't that express the agony of humanity? Very religious, but realizing... I've missed something. There's something not right. And that was the case here. They were worshiping all of these gods. There were so many gods, they couldn't keep up with them all. But they knew 
there was probably someone else, another God that they didn't know about. And so Paul says, I want to tell you about the unknown God. I want to tell you about the God that you don't know. And in verses 24 to 31, he tells them about five misconceptions they have about God. He tells them five things about the unknown God. Number one, he doesn't dwell in temples created by man. Verse 24, the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. The unknown God is not like your 30,000 other gods. He's not one among many. He is the only one. He is Lord of all, heaven and earth, and He created all. You know, it's interesting. With the Jews, Paul began with their revelation, which was the Old Testament Scriptures. With the Gentiles, he began with their revelation, which was creation. In fact, it's interesting, if you read down through this message, nowhere does Paul quote any scripture. Twice, however, he does quote pagan poets to pull out a line that they said that he can apply to God. Interesting technique. So Paul begins with this Gentile pagan audience with the subject of creation because that's their revelation. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. It is a designer label universe. The evidence of God's hand is everywhere. And the more man studies, the more apparent that becomes. Our only source of heat on the earth is the sun. The sun is 12,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's 93 million miles away. Now, why is it not 1,200 degrees Fahrenheit or 120,000 degrees Fahrenheit? Why are we 93 million miles away and not half that far or twice that far? Well, you know, Mercury is 36 million miles from the sun, less than half of what we are. You know what the average temperature on Mercury is? 660 degrees. Pluto is on the outside of our solar system. It's 4.6 billion miles from the sun. Average temperature is 380 degrees below zero. Why is it that we are 93 million miles away from a 12,000 degree ball of fire that we can walk outside at this time of year and get a nice suntan from? Is that a coincidence? No. That is the handiwork of God. The earth rotates 365 times a year. That nicely allows for 24-hour days. Sometimes you say, I wish I had more hours in the day. Well, if the earth rotated 36 times a year, you would have 240-hour days. Wouldn't that be great? You'd be exhausted the sun would be out so long it would burn up all the vegetation and it would be unbearably cold at night. Is that a coincidence? No. That's the handiwork of God. Oxygen constitutes 21% of the Earth's atmosphere. 
makes it ideal for breathing. What would happen if oxygen only made up 10% of the Earth's air? You would either be dead or gasping like a fish out of water. What if it made up 50% of the Earth's atmosphere? The first time someone lit a match, we would all be on fire. Is that a coincidence? No. It's the handiwork of God. The total area of our planet is 197 million square miles. 139 million of those square miles are under the sea. Nearly three-quarters of the Earth's surface is water. If we didn't have mountains and valleys, if the world was made like a ball, the way I would have made it, the whole surface of the Earth would be covered with one and a half miles of water. Is that a coincidence? No. It's the handiwork of God. Tides are caused by the gravitational pull of the moon. The moon is 240,000 miles away. If it were closer, we couldn't live on this planet because twice every day the water would come over the land. Later this month, I'm going to speak in Seattle, and I was looking at the camp brochure where I'm going, and it says one night they're going to have a salmon bake. Is that a coincidence? No. <laughs> salmon are fascinating salmon are saltwater fish but every year at spawning time the females go far up the river to the very spot where they were hatched and they deposit their eggs and then they die the males go way up the river, find those eggs, fertilize them, and die. And then in the warmth of the sun that's 93 million miles away, those eggs hatch. And when those little salmon are mature enough, without aid or guidance from their parents, they come back down the river to the ocean, and a year later complete that same cycle. Is that a coincidence? No. That's the handiwork of God. I was coming back the other day from St. Louis and over the sound of the traffic you could hear the locusts in the trees. Have you heard these guys? So I came home to do a little research. My, if my source is accurate, this year we've got the 13-year cicadas and the 17-year cicadas both at the same time. For sake of argument, I'll just talk about the 13-year cicadas. These guys have been in the ground for 13 years. They just came out this spring to feed on the leaves, to make all kinds of noise, which is their mating sound, to mate, deposit the eggs, and then die. Six weeks later, those little eggs will hatch into larvae that will go into the ground for another 13 years. And in the year 2011, they'll come back to make that sound to bug you again. That's amazing to me. 
that a coincidence? No. It's the handiwork of God. You just have to look around. The heavens and earth declare the work of his hand. It's a designer label universe. If I walked into my house and found the Scrabble game out and the Scrabble tiles scattered all over the kitchen table, I would assume that my wife and kids were playing Scrabble and something came up they had to leave and they left it all in a mess. But if I walked into my house and I found the Scrabble tiles on the kitchen table spelling out the words, let's go out to dinner tonight, my assumption would be quite different. I mean, I wouldn't even bother to look around and say, I wonder, maybe the window was open and the wind blew. Or, or maybe we had an earthquake and, and you know, or, or maybe the neighbor's cat got in here. You see, when there's intelligent design, there is an intelligent designer. And we live in a universe that has intelligent design, far beyond any intelligence that we have. And because of that, we know there is an intelligent designer. You say, well, if creation is declaring the glory of God, why are there atheists? You know, the reason a person concludes that there is no God is not intellectual and rational. It's moral and spiritual. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. But he's not talking there about an intellectual fool. He's talking about a moral fool. Because the rest of the verse says, They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. You see, the atheist doesn't reach that conclusion on the basis of objective, rational means. He decides that there is no God because he wants to avoid the guilt and the punishment of his sin. It is a moral decision and not a rational decision. So Paul begins here with creation. The God who created all this, the God who is Lord of all this, doesn't dwell in a puny little temple that you have made with your hands. And there were plenty of them around Athens. The Parthenon was right beside Paul. The temple to the goddess Athena, after which the city was named. Paul said God is greater than that. The unknown God is the creator of all. doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. Second thing he tells them about the unknown God, he doesn't need man's help, verse 25. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. They actually brought food to their gods. They clothed their images with splendid garments. They brought them gifts in hope that they could win their friendship. Paul says, let me tell you about the unknown God. He doesn't need to receive anything from you. Rather, he is the giver to all his create, creation of life and breath and all things. He is the God who sustains it all. He doesn't need anything from man. Third thing he tells him about the unknown God. He is not far away. Verse 26, And he made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. 
the Gentiles believed that the different nations were derived from different sources. They also believed that each different nation had its own separate God. There was the God of the Philistines and the God of the Amorites and the God of the Amalekites. Paul says to them that every nation came from one. One what? One man, Adam. All derived from that one man, which implies there is one God. And God determines their appointed times, how long a nation would last. God determines the boundaries of their habitation, how large they would grow. Daniel said the same thing in Daniel 2.21. He said that God removes kings and establishes kings. Why? Verse 27, that they should seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. God's purpose in establishing the nations is that they might seek him and find him. And Paul is saying here, if you can't find God... It's not because he's playing hard to get. It's not because he's far away. It's because you're in the darkness groping. In fact, he goes on in verse 28 to say, For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said. That's a quote from the Cretan poet Epimedes. It was written about Zeus. But Paul extracts this little quote and applies it to the unknown God. He is the one in whom we live and move and have our being. He is everywhere. They believed that their gods lived up on Mount Olympus. They had to make a long journey, tedious journey to get there and try to appease them if they wanted to. He says, God is right here. He's not far away. He can be sought and he can be found. And then the, third, or the fourth thing he tells us about the unknown God is that he's not an idol made by man. Verse 28 continues, as even some of your poets have said, for we also are his offspring. That's a quote from the Greek poet Eratus. And Paul is saying he had it right. We are the offspring of God. Verse 29, being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Paul says we are made in his image, and since we are made in his image... Why would it make sense for us then to make something in our image that would be God? We are made in God's image. He is not something made in our image. He is not an idol. And then the fifth thing he tells them about the unknown God is that he is not indifferent. Verse 30, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. God has overlooked the times of ignorance. What are the times of ignorance? Well, that may be a reference to all of the past time before the coming of Christ. Or it may apply to the individual. You see, the times of ignorance in the life of an individual are the times when we, as the offspring of God, were trying to satisfy ourselves with something less than Him. We have all had times of ignorance. And Paul says God has overlooked them. God has not given us what we deserve. God has withheld judgment. But then Paul goes on to say, now that you have heard the good news that Jesus Christ is the way to the heart of God, God's message to you is that you repent. 
Turn from your ignorance and turn to the God that you can now know. And then he goes on to give three reasons why they ought to repent in verse 31. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Three reasons why we should repent. Number one, there's an inescapable day. God has set a day when he will judge the world. And it doesn't matter if you say, I don't believe there's a God, you're going to stand before him one day. And the standard will be righteousness. And you will fall short. So Paul says, there is an inescapable day. Repent. Secondly, he says, there's an unchallengeable judge. He's going to judge through a man. They believed that they would be judged, if judged at all, by a god, little g, up on Mount Olympus. He says, no, you're going to be judged by a man, capital M. One who has lived among you, one who knows what it's like, one who has kept the standard of righteousness. Jesus said in John 5, 22, for not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Repent. There is a judge you will stand before one day that you will not be able to challenge. And then the third reason you ought to repent is the irrefutable fact at the end of verse 31, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The truth of Christianity rests on an irrefutable fact. God raised Jesus from the dead. And that is the guarantee that he will do everything else that he has said. You're not going to stand before him one day and say, I didn't have enough proof. You had irrefutable proof, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, repent. There is an inescapable day of judgment. You will stand before an unchallengeable judge, and you have been given an irrefutable fact. And then the passage closes with the three reactions to Paul's message. First of all, some mocked, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Mocking is always the defense that pride takes when it has no logical defense. They resorted to ridicule. Second reaction, some delayed, verse 32. But others said, we shall hear you again concerning this. Paul said in verse 30, God now is declaring to men everywhere that they should repent. They said, maybe later. We'd like to hear more about this some other time. And you get the impression from this passage that they didn't get another time. Because verse 33 says, so Paul went out of their midst. But then there was a third reaction. And that is that some believed, verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Dionysus was an Areopagite, which means he was one of the judges of the court in Athens. He was an influential man high up in government in the city of Athens. We don't know anything more about him. We also have a lady mentioned here. We don't know anything about her. We don't really know anything about the church at Athens because... Paul never wrote a letter there. We never read anything else about them. 
But we do know that Athens was a difficult place to minister. But you know, it's not too dissimilar from the setting in which we live. We live in a day when education and philosophy have espoused the idea that God does not exist. We live in a day when the prevalent teaching in our schools is no longer creationism, it's Darwinism. The message is that man is a cosmic accident. And that kind of teaching shouldn't surprise us when it leads man to the conclusion that he is insignificant. And I think that's one of the reasons why today we have children killing children. Because we have taught them that they're just an accident. So if you're just an accident, then life is not valuable. It doesn't matter if you kill someone. It's just like squashing a bug. And it also shouldn't surprise us when we're being taught that we're insignificant that man has turned to idolatry. And in our country, we have the idolatry of materialism and we have the idolatry of pantheism. Pantheism means God is everywhere. And many people have grabbed hold of that today. God is in the pew, God is in the tree, God is in the rocks, God is, everyone is God, everything is God, and that's why you got people today hugging trees. Don't hurt the tree. You know, don't, don't, that, that tree is just as important as I am because we're all God. And save the earth and all of these arguments, it's based on pantheism. We live in an idolatrous culture. It's all around us. And so the question is, are we like Paul going to be provoked enough in our spirit not just to stand and shake our heads but to go into the public arena and reason with the people. The late Carl Sagan's book Cosmos begins this way. The cosmos is all that is or ever was or ever will be. I recommend another book it starts this way. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The question is, are we going to be intimidated or motivated? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word today. We thank you for this example of the Apostle Paul in a difficult, intimidating culture and, Lord, how he was provoked in his spirit to step out for you and to preach the God that people did not know. And, Father, I pray that we'll be challenged today because we live in that same kind of culture to get outside of the walls of this church building, to go into the public arena, and to speak out for you to those who will listen. And, Father, I pray that we would be willing to face the mockery and the disdain that we may hear as well because there are some there that you want to reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cause us to make a difference in our world for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.